Okay, grab your Bibles, if you will, and open them to, um, to Genesis 3. And uh, let me read you uh, the, the first seven verses of Genesis 3. You follow in your copies of uh, that which um, we pretty much around here believe to be inerrant. That is, we believe it, and we're not sure that everybody does, but uh, if you struggle with that, that's why we're in business, to try and let you know how trustworthy is the book that, you're, that we're reading from. Here we go, verse 1 of Genesis chapter 3. It reads like this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said, serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. I bet you never expected to see Genesis 3 as as one of the texts uh, used in our little marriage series, now did you? Genesis 2, sure. Ephesians 5, well, of course, uh, Matthew 19, maybe, but Genesis 3? I mean, isn't Genesis 3 about the, uh, the, 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 the fall? Well, guys, Genesis 3 is, is a chapter that is so pivotal in, in the entire Bible because it recounts for us um, the story of the fall of mankind into sin. Yes, it does. Um, you've heard me say this before, but basically the Bible has two halves. The, the first half consists of Genesis 1 and 2, and then the other half begins at Genesis 3 and then goes to the end of the Bible. Because Genesis 3 is, is a pivotal text that, that, that affects everything. Um, everything changes as a result of what takes place in Genesis 3, including marriage. Now, you know, there's a whole lot that needs to be said about uh, and ought to be said about Genesis 3. And, and I did so uh, in a four-part series back in 2011. So if you, if you want to know more about um, Genesis 3, it's available to you online. And, um, but, but we're using the text this morning to take us in a different direction. Uh, uh, concerning this, this topic of marriage, what is the connection of Genesis 3... To marriage. Well, ladies and gentlemen, may I say um, very emphatically that the connection is, is very direct and it is very immediate. 
It's direct in the sense that the, the greatest cause of all marital discord is not because we don't have very, anything at all in common. The, the, the greatest cause of marital discord is because of something we both have in common. Sin. We bring it. We bring our sin into our marriages with us. You know, um, last week, as you, some of you may recall, I, um, I mentioned very emphatically um, the destructive force of, of selfishness in marriage. Well, selfishness is, is, just, is just a species of which sin is the genus. I'm selfish because I'm a sinner, not the other way around. I didn't become a sinner because I was selfish. I became selfish because I'm a sinner. And I brought that sin, with all of its selfishness and other things, down to the aisle with me. Um, you know, I also said that the, that the connection is very immediate. How so? Well, let me, let me show you. Look, look at the text, guys. Um, look at um, chapter 2, verse 25. That says, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You know, you, you, when you read that, you, it's almost as if it's a useless piece of information, almost a throwaway text. What does that have to do with anything? Until you come to Genesis 3, um, where we see in after verse 6, when sin enters, we find these words in verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. In 2.25, they were open, and they didn't know they were naked. But in then sin enters, and in verse 7, now they're seeing, now they understand. And they begin to sow fig leaves and all that business. As a result of the entrance of sin, they become very self-aware, very self-conscious, very self-protective, very selfish. Something that didn't exist in 2.25. But this ever-present consumption with self came as the result of the entrance of sin. And it came immediately. You know, I went to a wedding last night and a sweet little couple and and they, they did something in their, their wedding that, that I've never had done in mine. It certainly wasn't inappropriate. It, it um, um, sweet little thing. They, they both wrote something, a piece of, I don't know whether it was, it wasn't poetic. It was, uh, it was just a piece of romantic exchange, you know. And, and I was sitting close enough that, that I could hear everything they said. And, you know, they said things like, oh, you know, you're the love of my life. And, you know, just what any couple would say. And, you know, I can't imagine the... Um, the sun rising without you, and uh, you know, and uh, we have a love like no other love that's ever been loved before, and, and all that business. And but you know, interestingly, neither one of them said a word about sin. And by the way, they said nothing, not a word about selfishness. You know, um, 
Selfishness was just one of the little demons that flew out of Pandora's box once, once sin entered. The consumption with self. And, and as I said last week, marriage has a built-in intolerance of, of selfishness. And thus, marriage has never been the same since Genesis 3. That's the connection. That fruit that was offered to Adam and Eve, to this first little married couple, um, offered to them by Satan, who tricked them, uh, tricked them into thinking that that they could they could be in charge of their own destiny and and that they could uh, they could uh, uh, you know map out their own futures and and that they could um, uh, control their own well being. He told them, uh, "You can be as God, and you know how we all want to be our own God." Well, they didn't get that. What they got was a homewrecker. Um, and, and the husband, he begins to exploit his, his top spot. And the wife, she begins to plot and scheme to, to get that top spot. And so the, the gender wars have been with us ever since. And that self-giving love that I mentioned last week, oh, that's been missing in action ever since. Ever since the arrival of sin. There you go. There's your connection. You know, guys, until we find a solution for sin, marital bliss um, remains elusive. But here's the good news. Only, only a genius God could come up with this. Marriage is, is one of God's most effective secret weapons for the, for the revolutionizing of the human heart. Or, as I said last week, marriage is a means of grace. And grace, grace is the solution, ladies and gentlemen. And that's what I want to talk to you about this morning. Um, A grace-based life that will save your marriage. If not save it, certainly improve it. You you want a solution to to um, to the mediocrity of your marriage? Then um, I hope you'll listen. Because um, it's that grace-based life that is the solution. Now, let, let, me, let me start like this. Um, where can grace, without exception, be found? With, it's inevitable. Where, 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 we, can, where can we say for sure that grace is going to be present every time? Well, I can say this with, with confidence... It's going to be found with the humble because God promised it to be so. He said in James chapter 4, verse 6, he said, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It's also said in the book of Proverbs in chapter 3, I oppose the proud, says God, but when I find humility, I always crown it with grace. 
So, ladies and gentlemen, it all comes down to humility. Folks, um, is humility too steep a price to pay to save your marriage, to improve your marriage? Would you rather be miserable than be humble? And by the way, ladies, I'm not talking just to men. Would you rather be miserable than humble? But before you answer that, um, let me make sure you know what the Bible says about humility. What, 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 is the, what does a biblical humility look like? First of all, guys, humility is, is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Um, humility is such a relief. After all of those years of trying to save face and protect my very fragile ego, humility sets me free from that. But, but here's the key component that you've got to get. Guys, biblical humility is always purely Godward. Now, let me, let me try to explain what I mean. Um, um, I am to walk humbly, not because I compare poorly to you, but because I compare poorly to God. That's what I mean that it's purely Godward. If, if I want to develop humility, I don't compare myself with you. I compare myself to God, depending on the issue, why, I, you know, I could compare quite nicely to you, or I might compare very poorly. Um, but that's not humility. That's the fear of man. Let's take an issue. Let's take, um, let's take something that I might excel at. Let's take um, Bible knowledge. Well, compared to you, you know, I might, I might look pretty good. But if you put me in a room with, with John Piper and R.C. Sproul and Al Mohler and Robbie Zacharias, um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't measure up too well. But that's not humility. That, that's a respecter of persons. That's, uh, that's people watching. The, the distance between, between me and you, oh, it's very, very small. But the difference between me and God it is infinite. So if humility is, is something that I'm after, I, I've got to look vertically, not horizontally. If you think being humbled is that you lost your golf match, then you don't know the first thing about humility. In fact, what we need is a healthy dose of Isaiah chapter 40, where we find words like these. Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket. Not individuals, the nations. All the nations are as nothing before him. All the inhabitants of the earth are like grasshoppers. 
if, if you want humility, you're going to have to look up, not around you. And when I finally see myself like this, when I finally begin to see myself under the microscopic sin-hating eye of God, then genuine biblical humility will begin to grow. And then when biblical humility begins to grow, guess what shows up? Grace. He promises grace to the humble. My view of me, my view of you, my view of life, all gets altered as I get put in my place by the holiness of God. And when I do get put in my place, grace begins to flood my soul. And now I think you know why there's so very little humility. But I'll ask you again. Is humility too steep a price to pay to save your marriage? If not, then let me show you um, how this is all going to flesh itself out concerning your marriage. That is, let me outline briefly what a, what a grace-based life will look like. Three things. What a grace-based life looks like, one that is, that is developing because humility is growing in me. Okay, three things. First of all, Humble people see all of life as a gift. Guys, I, I hope you've got your Bibles with you this morning. If you don't have them, shame on you. Uh, if you don't own one, um, let me buy you one. If you, if you do own one and didn't bring it, why not? Bring it. But you need to see this. I want to read you one half of one verse out of 1 Corinthians 4, and I'm telling you, if it ever seeps into the DNA of our souls, it will change us. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. I'm just going to read half of it. It says this. Are you looking at it? It says, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Um, what do you have that you did not receive? And why, if you, if you received it, why are you acting like that? Why are you acting like you're the master of your own soul and the captain of your own fate? If everything that you've got, you've got by way of gift. If you view all of life as a gift... That's what humble people do, folks. Is life a gift? Have you gotten more than you deserve? Humble people think like that. So no matter how life goes, I know that God gave it. But on the other hand, if I view life as something that I accomplished by, because of all of my savvy and all of my, my, my deft moves... Then, then, which, by the way, is the very opposite of a grace-based life. 
then, then when life doesn't go the way that I want it to go, or I think it should go, then I get mad. I get mad at everybody. I get mad at God. And I get mad at my spouse. Life isn't fair. I deserve better, including a better spouse. Nothing pleases you. Nothing pleases me. And, 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 and I don't deserve what I'm getting. I should be getting more. Because I've, I've worked for it. Guys, anybody here married to an angry spouse? Now you know where that came from. That, that performance-driven living, it is a cruel bondage. And grace sets you free from that. Humble people, number one, view all of life as a gift. A gift that God gave me. Secondly, humble people view other people differently. Because I have tasted grace, um, I, I, I begin to see what I'm really like. I, I, know, I know just how ravaged I am by sin. Um, and because I see just how... How broken I am, other people begin to look better. Why, they couldn't possibly be as wicked as I am. You know, when you read that little statement by the Apostle Paul, when he says, you know, um, uh, I am a chief of sinners, you know, I'm the, I'm the worst. That's a man who's talking like he understands grace. When you understand grace, you think, oh my gosh, there's nobody that could be as self-absorbed and as broken as I am. So everybody else begins to look better. I'm more accepting. I'm, more, I'm less rejecting. For example, let's say that my thing is that I'm a hard worker. You know... Um, I just, I'm, I'm at the office and I work hard. And that's where I, that's how I got. Which, which is fine to work hard until it becomes your identity. That is my, 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 my personal worth is because I'm such a hard worker. It's a performance driven life. If that's who you are, then, then you will always despise all those people who are not like you. You know, the lazy. You, you look down on, on other people, people of different races, people of different politics, because they just don't measure up to you. In a word, they're inferior. You're proud of your hard work. You're proud of what you think you've earned. And if more people were just like you, this world would be a better place. The thin reject the fat, and the rich reject the poor. And then I go out and I find myself a church that reminds me that I'm not like them, because we're better over here than, than them. 
All because my, my worth is based on my performance, of which I am proud. Which, ladies and gentlemen, is the very opposite of a grace-based life. People who understand grace view people differently because they know something about themselves. Anybody here married to a, a very critical spouse? You know where that critical spirit comes from, don't you? It comes from being high-minded. A very demanding person, hard to live with. Is that you? Well, at least you know why now. Um, because you've never really understood who you are apart from Jesus Christ. Here's the third thing that a grace-based life will look like, guys. Humble people are good at relationship repair. And every relationship requires repair. No matter how much you love him or her, life can be counted on to produce fractures in your relationship, potholes in the relationship that are going to have to be repaired. Where humble people are good at relationship repair. Unfortunately, divorce has become a disincentive to relationship repair. Gang, there are two things that are going to be needed for relationship repair. Number one, repentance. Number two, forgiveness. Sometimes I'll be doing the repenting, and other times I'll be doing the forgiving. Oh, but I've been lied to. Well, you probably have. And guess what? You have probably lied also. So, on some occasions, you'll be doing the repenting. On other occasions, you will be called upon to forgive. Both of those are difficult. But of the two, I think you'll agree, the most difficult one is the forgiving one. Guys, let me, let me talk about repentance real quick. Repentance is not simply saying, I'm sorry. That is an apology. Guys, repentance focuses on sin. If I sinned against my wife, then I must repent, not apologize. Apologies are designed to heal over the smooth over the relationship so that we can get back in bed at night. Repentance focuses on the sin. You know those harsh words? That critical spirit? That withholding of tenderness? Anger? Those don't get fixed by an apology. They require repentance and restitution. And not the restitution of flowers and chocolates. The restitution of changed behavior. But then, repentance done. Now the ball becomes... 
the, go, the ball gets hit into the forgiver's court. And forgiveness is the oil that keeps the marital machine humming. Guys, there's so much that needs to be said about forgiveness, and I just don't have time. But let me, let me take about ten minutes. Think for a minute of Adam and Eve's marriage. Um, it lasted 900 years. Now, depending on your perspective, some of you are saying, wow. And others of you are saying, ugh. But um, Eve would come to Adam and she'd say, well, well, you ate the fruit too. And then he would say, yeah, but you gave it to me. And I tell you, ladies and gentlemen, some of you are doing the same thing right now. Holding on to past grudges, some of them ancient. You may remember I told this story years ago about a couple that I, that I counseled in Florida. And they were much older. I was in my 30s and they were low 50s. They've been married for 25 years. And the issue that got spewed out in my office that day was that on their honeymoon, they've been married for 25 years, on their honeymoon, they, they attended a parade and, and uh, the, the, newly, the new groom, the new husband, ogled at and whistled at a little majorette as she passed by him where they were standing on the street. And that wife brought that thing into my office 25 years later. And some of you are doing the same thing. Maybe not 25 years old. Maybe it's 25 weeks old. Maybe 25 months old. Guys, you've got to open your Bibles and see this. Um, again, if you didn't bring your Bible, then change that next week. But I want you to see this. It's in Matthew chapter 6. It's, it's a part of the Sermon on the Mount. This is inerrant. What I'm saying is not. What he says is. This is, the, this is Jesus speaking. And he's, this is right after he uh, gave us the Lord's Prayer. And he says, look at it. Let your eyes feast on two verses, really one sentence, out of the mouth of Jesus Christ. It starts in verse 14 of chapter 6. Matthew, it says this. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. That's good. But... If you do not forgive others their trespasses, look at it, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I've got degrees galore, but it doesn't take any of those degrees to explain that. Do you know what it says? It says if you refuse to forgive, if you withhold forgiveness, you will perish. Ha! 
how, my friend, can you continue to withhold forgiveness when and if you finally realize of what you have been forgiven? You see, the reason that people will perish because they don't forgive is because they've never understood forgiveness. But we who know the Savior, we say we know something about forgiveness that was undeserved. My friend, the only way you can hold on to a grudge is that somehow you believe that you are superior to the person who has offended you. And you say something like this. You say, well, I'd never do something like that. Really? You believe that? Several months back, um, via an email, there were some, some things that were said about me that were very un, unflattering. Um, very wounding. Very bruising. And, um, you know, it was, it was a little two or three day process. But the thing that allowed me to arrive at forgiveness was just what I'm preaching to you this very minute. For me to not forgive would be in essence to say, uh, uh, well, I would never do something like that. Oh, he, he exercised a very loose Tongue against me. Oh, but I, Jimmy Young, I have never done that before. When the truth is, I've probably done it ten times more than this man has ever done it. How can I withhold forgiveness? When I have done the very same thing. I would never do something like that. Does that sound like humility to you? No, it doesn't, does it? And I want you to know that God says that he opposes you. Relationship repair means that sometimes I'm doing the repenting. But at other times, I'm doing the forgiving. Forgiveness is an act of unconditional grace. And it consists of three component parts. I, I, I should spend days on this. I can only spend about th three minutes. Forgiveness is an act of unconditional grace that is comprised of three component parts. Here they are. Number one, 
dropping all charges. Number two, asking for no compensation. And number three, in the hardest, bearing the penalty of the wrong yourself. Dropping all charges, asking for no compensation, and bearing the penalty of the wrong done yourself. My brother and sister in Christ, we are both required. To give that. But let me assure you that you have gotten that. Maybe not from your spouse, but you have gotten it from God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of Jesus Christ drops all charges, it asks for no compensation, and it bears the penalty of my sin in himself. What a savior. And you know what? I get to be married to him much longer than 900 years. That's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. Forgiveness. An act of unconditional grace. Granted me by a Savior who drops all charges, asks for no compensation, and dies for the sin himself. Our Father, I pray that you will use what has been said here to remind your people that what is required of us is, um, is way beyond what we can muster up in our flesh. What we need is grace. Grace promised to the humble. Grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace that changes the way that I view other people. Grace that changes the way that I view myself. Grace that makes me a repenter and a forgiver. Grace that allows me to see that all of my life is a gift. A gift from a very good and sovereign God. Father, for those who are outside of that grace right now, would you cause them to see? Open their eyes like, like, like you have done so many times of the people in this room. Open their eyes that they can see the beauty of grace. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.